0: Okay, I have two thumbs now to pay attention to. It's very complex. I have to look in two different places to find out if we can begin. And both thumbs came up at the proper time, I suspect or I hope, and off we go. today. July the 15th, 2018, lecture discussion number 29 on the Book of Joel. You may not notice that it is the Book of Joel today, but it is indeed. So we are finally back from our summer break. Admittedly, there were some sunny days in that two week time period. I believe there were two. And they were in, a, it got into the 80s, and naturally when it gets in the 80s here at Anchorage, we all sit in our trucks with our rifle racks And our raw meat, and we run the air conditioning because we're miserable, right? That's what we do. And 80 degrees in Alaska, everyone complains about it. It's horrifying. (laughs) Fortunately, good weather around here lasts what? A day, maybe. No, not more than a week. And we went back to 45 degrees really fast. I was outside working at 45 degrees in July. Welcome to Anchorage. All of you who are visiting here, ha ha ha! Bring a coat. Now, granted, it was 45 degrees in Anchorage at 10 o'clock at night, so that's p.m. where it was cloudy and it was raining. And I know it was 10 o'clock at night, and I know it was 45 degrees because Lori was outside painting window trim. That's what we did on our vacation, in case you were wondering. And she's 30 feet up in the air minimum and reaching out as far as she can. She's dangling one foot on the ladder and one arm and she's out there. And my job, of course, is to stand below and provide quality control. Uh, And also move the 38 foot extension ladder when necessary. Just in case you were wondering, that ladder will hold 350 pounds. So, if anyway, you were concerned, so there was no problem there. It's it's a very old ladder, um, obviously because of what it can weigh and how much it is, how far it goes. But my job is to move it when necessary because with, the windows are fairly good size and they're way up in the air, and she can't reach very far because she has tiny little arms, and, and so I have to move the ladder. Uh, a lot, and it's a very perilous process, requiring technical skill and physical prowess. And, and of course, Laurie remains on the ladder while I'm moving it. And, uh, you think I'm kidding? <laughs> Look at you laugh. <laughs> think circus balancing act. If you want to get a picture of it, uh, America's Got Talent kind of. Uh. And i got to move it off. And again, it's short arms and short legs, and that impedes the production. But I persevere nonetheless, as I must. What can you do? So that's what we have been doing, is painting the house. And we got three sides of it completely painted. And now all we have to do is tear all the siding off the front, throw in five or seven windows, whatever we can do, and re uh, reside it and caulk it. And then we're done for the summer which is already done for us. So that's our plan. And I can't wait for the I can't wait for the mail, the DOL. You you you're aware of the DOL, I'm sure. Whenever I tell these stories that are mostly true about what we do, me and Lori, <laughs> the DOL mobilizes. Yeah, the defenders of Lori, that's right. They they come and I can't wait for them. Cuz it's always a delight. And speaking of mail, I thought it best to kind of reorient ourselves in the discussion that we're having in Joel. I'm going to do it in a very shallow way. I'll pick it up a little heavier next week. I thought I would do a little bit more math than I normally would in a lecture today. But I, as I went through it and read it again, I thought, no, that's a bad idea. I'll leave it a little bit vague and certainly cursory or shallow, the same word. And so that you can absorb it. And uh, uh, this is always a day that's, uh, how do I put it? Not when we take this much time off, it's hard to get started again. So you're getting a head start on the rest of the class. And we'll see how it goes. I thought it best to utilize, again, our first Sunday back to catch up. And uh, and read some mail. Comments from the vast Internet audience. And first one that I have is uh, from the always... Percipient, Lord James of the Lawrences. Let's make sure I find it. Where is it? Here we go. I hope. Oh, I've got to find it. There we go. Got it. So this is from Lord James James of the Lawrences, and, and he had a, an occasion to discuss what the physics community to be the inviolable universal constant, namely the speed of light. And you're familiar with Einstein's E equals MC squared, that is light, it's a, a Greek word for speed. So, he had a discussion on the speed of light, and it came to be that Lord James had this particularly uh, interesting interaction with Neil deGrasse Tyson, whom you may be aware of. He is now the public figure, I would say, that is most identified as the replacement for Carl Sagan. So he is on all these shows and he has uh, absorbed, if you will. Uh, he is now the one that uh, they recognize as being the successor to Dr. Sagan. And it came to be that Lord James, as I said, came upon Neil deGrasse Tyson on a park bench in Texas and sat down beside him to have a discussion. And I should interject that Lord James from Texas, I should emphasize Texas, because I also have Mark from Texas and Sharon from Texas and Shannon from Texas and Glenn from Texas, etc. There are many more from Texas. I hope you get the point. I suspect you do. Texas is home to fiercely independent, strong-willed advocates of literacy of Scripture. That's what's in Texas. That's what's in Alaska, too. We are the same as them, and they have come here in in a great number, as you know. And uh, that characteristic will seek out and challenge those who insist on monistic evolutionary philosophies. And if you're going to take on that subject, then you it's required that it necessitates familiarity and command of the atheistic precepts and their accompanying scientific theories, the accomplices, if you will, in the scientific realms. And certainly Neil deGrasse Tyson represents currently the portion of the theoretical astrophysics community that embraces atheism. He is a defender of it, and he makes no bones about it. If you wish to call it reductive materialism, you can. Physicalism, pick whatever term you wish. He is on the side of those who say that the reality is physical-based and physical-based only, and there is no spiritual element to it. So here sits Neil deGrasse Tyson. I hope I'm not butchering his name. And along comes Lord James. Should be fun. So let me read the letter. The title of it is A Conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like Albert Einstein, Neil deGrasse Tyson has become the face of physics for today's general public. He is often a guest speaker and has done a number of science-based television programs. Another similarity is his affinity for recognition and willingness to engage the public. And that's all true. Therefore, not a surprise, but surprisingly, writes uh, Jim, James, I saw... Mr. Tyson sitting on a park bench at the courthouse here in Texas. And I have an interest in physics, and oh, yes, he does. This is somebody, uh, uh, Lord Jim, as I now call him. Does anybody know who Lord Jim is? It's not familiar to you? Lord Jim was, um, there was Tarzan, right? Yes, thank you. My goodness. One person remembers Lord Jim. Gosh, what does that say about me? Not good. Anyway, Jim has familiarity uh, that is uh, quite substantial in the physics elements. Uh, And he says, I have an interest in physics and have more than a passing education in the subject. That is a very conservative appraisal of his capabilities. Uh, Quite... um, how shall I put it? That is uh, humility at at bear, if you will. I question the tenets of the standard model, question other theories of the du jour, and even question some of the fundamental elements. This is healthy. And he's right. That is healthy. It is called the scientific method. So I thought I would engage Mr. Tyson in conversation. So here he sees Neil deGrasse Tyson on a park bench in Texas, and his first consideration is... Hey, let's have a talk. His persona and his look told me it would work, and it did. So here is the transcript. Howdy, I'm Lord Jim. I added that. Welcome to Texas. Hand extended a note. I did not say, and he goes on to say what he did not say. You can read it later. I won't repeat it. Neil. Thank you. Please call me Neil. Jim. Okay, Neil. Lord Jim. I have some questions if you have the time. Ha <laughs> ha. Oh. That's fantastic. Neil. Sure, I presume they are science related and if so, I would be happy to provide answers if I can. Lord Jim. Time. I have some questions about time. I've read the turtle book. I'm sure you remember the turtles all the way down. We've gone over that uh, concept many times here. And I understand current measuring techniques and I understand the current definition. Neil, good, not his greatest work. Ask away. Lord Jim, we have given up the physical definition of the meter and have defined it against the second. Neil, yes. And I'm sure you know why that physical definition would, work not, not, would not work today. Lord Jim, yes I do, but it troubles me that we define the second against the meter and then turn around and define the meter against the second. Neil, but they are both defined against a universal, universal constant, the speed of light in a vacuum. Lord Jim, but never, there is never a vacuum really, is there? And we don't really know what it is that's in that vacuum anyway, isn't that true? Neil, true, but we have set the speed of light at 299,792,458 meters per second in a vacuum. Lord Jim, my point exactly. The speed has been set and never measured or not measured. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the speed was set in deference to Einstein's theory of relativity. Lord Jim, but weren't the measurements changing? Neil. The speed of light is constant. It does not change. Early measurements were just not accurate. Lord Jim. But there was a downward trend in the measurements that was statistically significant. Neil Tyson. No, the speed of light is constant. Lord Jim, not subject to entropy. Tyson. No. Lord Jim, can we really tell time to the extent that current theories require? I realize that I'm splitting hairs here, but will a second now be a second at the end of this sentence? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Of course it will. These definitions are the foundations of our theories going forwards. They cannot be questioned. I will say this for Mr. Tyson. He absolutely said what he believed. And he also knew who he was up against. He may not have known Lord Jim personally, but he knew what Lord Jim was doing, what the argument was. Lord Jim responds, can we talk about math? (laughs) Oh, wow. Can we talk about math a bit? Surely you can agree that math and physics are not the same and that math is just a tool to help us explain the physical universe. Neil deGrasse Tyson, I have an appointment that I must keep. You, you, sir, have a shallow understanding of our work and the body of knowledge in my field. And then Lord Jim writes this. That was it. Over in just a few seconds. It's very funny. It was like playing chess with a pigeon. The pigeon will scatter the pieces, defecate on the board, and fly away, declaring victory. Well, that's the first letter. So, okay, what are they talking about? How'd you do? Have any idea what they were trying to say? Because they're speaking in a language that you probably are not familiar with. But what's my goal? is to make you familiar with it so that you understand it. These were two men of significant capability, intellectual capability. One Christian, one atheist, sitting on a park bench. And they spoke in phrases that assume information is available to them. Both. So let's see what we can do. Lord Jim makes it absolutely clear. Whoops, I probably need to keep this out here so that I can reread it. He said... Time. I have some questions about time. This is a discussion on Joel because it's a discussion about time. He does not say, he did not ask, and he could have, but he chose not to. He went the direction, he went for a reason, but he could have said this. What is time to Neil deGrasse Tyson? He did not. He could have said, "What? why is there time? He did not. He could have said, who contains, who instituted time? Is there, in other words, someone in authority over time? Is there someone before time? He didn't ask that either. When did time begin? Why did time begin? And when it began. And we, of course, have the theological position that God instituted time. Christ says he is the one that began time. He says he contains time. Why did he start it when he did? And Lord Jones could have asked any of those, and and if he had any of those uh, asked any of those, Mr. Tyson would have likely recognizes the theologi- recognized. I'm sorry, I'm stumbling. Mr. Tyson would have likely recognized the theological implications of those statements or questions, and the pigeon would have immediately uh, gone into a defensive structure, and he probably and would have. I know he did because he did it here. He would have cited two flaws of logic as a defense. What he argued, uh, he argued a position is true by assuming that it is true, if you will. In other words, if the premises, he assumes the premises of what he says is true, and therefore his position based on those premises is true, that's a logical flaw. Arguing that because a position is popular, it must therefore be true is another logical flaw. And he would have gone into those defense methods. Jim clearly stated it: it's scattering the pieces and declaring victory. And that is exactly what de Tyson certainly did. It's the default monism position, and you best prepare for it. As it were, questions are, and again, I could get very technical here. I'm not going to do it today. So that means, when am I going to do it? That's right, next week. We're talking about the meter and the second Or, if you will, distance and time. That's what this is centering on. It's a tiny, brief opportunity for Lord Jim to talk to a man with Mr. Tyson's positions. Because of the way he structured it, he was able to get this brief uh, affording of this opportunity. So, let's ask some questions. What are the current measuring techniques and the current definition of time and second? Because that's what de Grasse Tyson said. He said we have the speed of light at 299, 792, 458 meters per second in a vacuum. That is the current definition. So, what does that mean? Obviously, if there's a current definition, then that implies that there's a past measuring technique, if you will, a past measuring system, a past definition. I'm going to race ahead of myself there if I keep going down that track, so I'm going to back up a second. What is a second? What is he talking about? What is a meter? I'm going to tell you. Ready? A second is a second. A meter is a meter. I know brilliant analysis is always, but that's what it is. What does it mean to define the second against the meter? A meter is now defined as the length of a path that light travels in a vacuum. That's what he said. So light travels in a vacuum. If it travels for 1, 299, 742, 458 of a second, that's a meter. Does that make sense to you? In other words, a meter is currently defined by the physics community, by the world, if you will, as the length of the path of, of the travel of light in a vacuum in one 299 million 792 eighths of a second. So as far as it goes in that period of time, that's a meter. Everybody got that? If you don't, it's okay. Wait. You will. Meter comes from the Greek. Well, this is the correct spelling, the correct way you will see it. But it comes from uh, metrio, And it's defined, uh, that means speed. It's C, back to E equals MC. That word C has a relationship to speed. But a meter is a, is a fraction of a distance. It first was, a, and this is a while back, and some of this may not be completely perfect. I, I just kind of roughed it out here a little bit, as far as I know. It used to be defined as a fraction of the distance from the equator to the North Pole. In other words, how far from the equator to the North Pole, they divided it into ten millionths, and a meter was one ten millionth of that distance. Does that make sense? And then they constructed a platinum iridium meter bar. So, using my terrific artistic capabilities. Oops, it's not quite a meter. It's going to be right here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the best I can do. Whoops. It's not the best I can do. They made a bar. They made it out of platinum. Mostly platinum. Overwhelmingly platinum. And they decided that is a fraction of the distance between the equator and the North Pole. That's what we've decided is a meter. And they put it in a fancy little organized place. I think they still have one there, as a matter of fact. And that is what they decided was a meter. That was the definition of meter, was that bar. And we ugly Americans... um, in other words, it was a physical object. Uh, we ugly Americans, uh, with our imperial inch, defined a meter at 39 and 3 8 empirical inches. And, of course, no one likes us because of that. The physicists don't do that. They don't accept this as a meter. That was a past definition. Circumference of or the equator to the North Pole. Now, they have said it is the distance that light travels in 1299,742,458 of a second. Are you with me? I'm looking at you. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Ugly Americans. Yes. This is the scientific. You cannot find. You will, see, you will see speed of light defined not in miles per hour, but in kilometers per hour or meters per second. But you will not see it in yards or feet or inches. That's ugly Americans. So we are outside of the construction of the physics community. Now, I, to say to be fair, the American physicists uh, all have this system. But it was in very, very important for them to have a measurement that they want to be universal. And as you might have heard me say... The speed was set in deference to Einstein's theory of relativity. That's what he said. We have set the speed of light to 299, 792, 458 meters per second in a vacuum. That's what has been decided. Mankind has decided this. Now, why did they use the circumference of the Earth and the North Pole? (coughs) Ask those questions. So this all stems from man's desire to have a universal, inviolable, non-contestable system. And they tried all kinds of methods. They had a pendulum. that How far did it travel in two seconds? That was proposed to be because a pendulum is dependent upon what? gravitational influence and they took the gravitational influence and the pendulum and they tried to get a meter out of that system the earth's circumference measurement how far the circumference of the earth was a fraction of that they tried wavelength emissions from plasma they put krypton gas in a magnetic environment and measured the wavelengths of the krypton gas uh, residual wavelengths I'm sorry But there's problems with all of those. The Earth's circumference is subject to flattening. As it rotates, it flattens. So it gets really difficult to get a precise measurement. The platinum bar, of course, has to be hermetically sealed effectively. It's subject to temperature. It's subject to gravitational forces. It's subject to magnetic forces. It's subject to atmospheric pressure. Cold and heat, as I said. So, again, uncertainty raises its unattractive heads. It's the old oops, air-introduced. Not precise enough. So eventually, the current measurement was in deference to Einstein's theory of relativity. Keep that in mind. The meter is the distance traveled by light in a vacuum in exactly 1, 299, 792, 458 of a second. Or if you prefer, you can do it this way. that is what this subject is. Two guys sitting on a bench arguing over this. Uh, I I wish you could see each other's faces. It's fantastic. I hope what you're saying, and, and again, this is what Lord Jim from Texas and his new friend, Neil, are debating. And it got reasonably heated. Really fast. And I know, I hope I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, who does this? Who is... (laughs) People are pointing at Bill the cow. (laughs) You can't see them. (laughs) But that's exactly right. Who does this? I used to, as you know, I I do these kinds of lectures for many, many years. And only 25 years ago, we'll have to ask Lori if she survived me moving the ladder. But it, it might have been 25 years. A guy held up a sign in one of my lectures. Who cares? Yeah, it's amazing. That was probably my defining moment as a Bible teacher. I, I was, when it first happened, I was a little bit taken aback by it. But over time, I have delighted and amused by it now. And I wish it would happen more often. That's perfect. Who cares? Who does this? I can tell you who cares and who does this. Cliffside people. And I can't be more proud to even know him, Lord Jim. The fact that he pays attention to what we do here is fantastic to me. The highest possible compliment. He's not alone. I have another letter. I mean, short one. And we'll deal with that here in a minute. Because they're both about Joel. This is Bill the Fasts. Were you weird before Cliffside or did Cliffside make you weird? It's pretty obvious that that's been settled. The answer is yes. You were weird before Cliffside and Cliffside hopefully contributed uh, some small portion. Uh, I hope so. And i like to think the answer is yes. Anyway. Once the length of a meter was agreed upon, and they have all agreed upon it now by those who are assigned, to the power, or assigned the power to agree. So what I call the agreeers. Once the agreeers who have been given the power to agree and they utilize the media to influence uh, the rest of us and to validate or to empower their agreeing. Once they agreed that this is going to be the new standard for the definition of a meter, then of course by logical extinction Extension, it was available to them logically for to define a second as the time it takes for light to travel the, their set distance that they've agreed on. And we'll do the math next week. And that's Jim, Lord Jim's complaint. He said, we define the second against the meter and then turn around and define the meter against the second. Now, I did it in reverse order when I explained it to you. I could have said, we define the meter against the second, then turn around and define the second against the meter. That's what I've done. Hope that hadn't confused you. I did it for the sake of simplicity. Hopefully it was simple. I doubt it, but it's the best I can do. But I think you can see the logical fallacy in this. And Lord Jim is absolutely right. And it is a common logical fallacy. What was Neil deGrasse Tyson's response to this when he said, um, let me read it exactly. Yes, I do. But it troubles me that we define the second against the meter and then turn around and define the meter against the second. Neil says, his new friend Neil, but they are both defined against a universal constant, the speed of light in a vacuum. And Jim's response, but there's never a vacuum really, is there? We really don't know that that's a vacuum. How do you know it's a vacuum? And that's when it begins to become, uh, begins to disintegrate and the pigeon wings come out. And I hope you see the, the fallacy. It's very common in, in monistic science. You see it all the time in evolutionary geology and archaeological encirclings. If you wish, to uh, that's the best word I can come up for what happens in archaeological and geological systems that are combined. The routine example is the dating of a rock formation to be hundreds of millions of years, which is time. You notice that? They say it's hundreds of millions of years. That's time old, and that's also time. So we see time right there. Radiometric decay is the time it takes for radioactive materials to decay into a lead state. How much time? So you see the same element. Now, if I can define time, if I can define the second against the meter and the meter against the second, then I have control of time. If I get you to agree to this, well, that really helps me if I have an agenda. But again, they take the rock formation, they say the rock formation is hundreds of millions of years, and then in its immediate area, the fossils that are in its proximity, they say they are therefore, because they are proximate to the rock formation, the two are identical in age. And then they, what becomes ridiculous is what they do next. Then they say, because we've established the date of the fossils, that validates or supports the date of the rock formation. It is the meter against the second and the second against the meter. It's what it is. And notice that Tyson ends up impugning the intellect and the capacity for understanding, the expertise of Lord Jim. You, sir, have a shallow understanding. And that is a logical fallacy. I hope you recognize it. It is ad hominem. He's attacking the presenter and not the content of his presentation. He's saying, you are stupid. You can't see it any other way. He just did it in a euphemistic way. Ad hominem hominem is the first resort of someone with a defeated position. It is a tactic. And anyone who takes a basic philosophy course will go through the logical fallacies. And when you use those things in an argument, you should at least know what you're doing. I can assure you that Neil deGrasse Tyson knew what he was doing. Why would he insult the man's intelligence and comprehension of the subject? Why would he do it? Why? Because he cannot defeat it. Why can't he defeat it? Those are the questions that come. But I'm digressing there a bit, starting to rant. Notice that de Grasse insisted that the speed of light has been established and cannot be disputed. It is decided science, he said. None can make, take issue with our decided science. The, the speed of light is non-falsifiable, he says. It's non-falsifiable to de, de Tyson. And that's an attribute, as you know, also assigned to anthropogenic global warming. It's non-falsifiable. No matter what argument attacks it, that argument cannot be utilized because it's true, and we say it's true, and it's always true, and you cannot say anything about it other than it's true. Lord Jim raises the question of the contents of a vacuum, the construction of nothingness. That's what he's doing here. So what exactly is nothing? How much does nothing weigh, I guess, would be the question. Is there really such a thing as nothing Jim is asking him what defines nothing what's in nothing because if there's a particle if there's any kind of energy in nothing is nothing nothing what's that <laughs> yes that is yeah, that's a theory and certainly not has not sustained uh, Skepticism, by any means. So, the point being, what defines nothing? Is it possible to measure nothing to make sure it's nothing? Who can know, who can decide if something is nothing? That's the question. Is there ever nothing? We really don't know. What is in the vacuum, in other words, is what he's asking. Is there anything in the vacuum? Because if that light runs into something that you call a vacuum, inside what you call a vacuum, then that light is affected by that, isn't it? Because we know that the medium in which light travels affects light. And Tyson agrees. He says, true, true. But we have set the speed of light to 299, 792, 458 meters per second in a vacuum. It's true we can't define vacuum, but nonetheless we have set the speed of light inside something that we can't define. And who is we? True. But we have set the speed of light. Who is true? uh, I'm sorry. Who is we there? And obviously that's the agreeers. And Tyson must count himself among the agreeers. The agreeers have chosen. They have decided. They're the deciders that they, they have set the speed of light in deference to Einstein's theory of relativity. And what's the obvious question? I know this is probably not as interesting as it is to you as it is to me. But I'm trying to make it so, because this is fantastic stuff. It is my fault if I'm not doing it well. Not the fault of the material. Yes, why does Einstein's theory of relativity have such sacrosanct sway, have so much importance? We did it in deference to this theory. Why? Why does this theory deserve deference? We've long known, as I said, that the medium through which light travels affects the light. By we, I mean me. Gravity affects light. Quantum entanglement is instantaneous. There isn't a quantum physicist alive today that won't tell you that quantum entanglement is instantaneous. It travels from one point in the farthest reaches of the universe to our solar system instantly. That electron and that electron rotate. They know. Somehow they know. Over the vast distance, the extraordinary distances of the universe. So, that's important. If gravity, I'm sorry, if quantum entanglement is instantaneous, what else is instant? By the way, oh, ah. They say that nothing can exceed the speed of light. But then they say quantum entanglement is instantaneous. Is light instantaneous? No, because they said they've set the measurement of it, right? They said, give you this, this is our measurement. So, it's not instantaneous, but quantum entanglement is instantaneous. So, how is it that something is instantaneous? How does that not violate the speed of light? Therefore, general relativity, special relativity. So, I want to know what else is instantaneous As you know, Newton said that gravity is instantaneous. He suspected that it was. Is gravity instantaneous? If it is, it's faster than light. But back to this. How fast is human thought? Now, you can't measure human thought by looking at a physical device. I can look at your brain with an MRI and see the chemical and the electrical imaging, the, the light, if you will, of your brain. Your brain will, will emit photon, will emit light. I will be able to look and see what your brain is doing. Am I measuring your thoughts? No. What I'm doing is looking at the evidence of your thoughts. Human thought is not material. It's not particles. Our thoughts are manifested, exposed by physical processes that we can we can see. But that's not the thoughts themselves. That's the thoughts affecting a physical piece of equipment. Does that make sense? As you know, the thoughts of a human being can kill a human being. He can destroy himself with it. They do it every World Cup. They probably did it this World Cup. They will deny themselves sleep. And die from lack of rest. It's very common. Bill the Cow is, I'm sorry, Bill the Fast is fond of bringing up that experiment and I think it was Stanford, wasn't it Bill, where they told a guy he was sick every day. He ended up almost dying. His thoughts almost killed him. And to reverse it was so dangerous. So you can measure the thoughts. You can see the impact the thoughts are having. But can you measure the speed of the thought? Thoughts are not reducible to particulates. We can't measure thought. We only have the access to the chemical electrical trail of them, if you will. Point being, yea, a point. Is quantum entanglement exceeding the speed of light? And if it is... What is the relationship between quantum entanglement and intelligent agency? Now that you might go, huh? But I'm pushing you towards what is the relationship between quantum entanglement and intelligent thought? Or to phrase it another way, where is the mechanism for thought? Who knows The thoughts of men, all men, every man, all animals, every animal. Who knows these thoughts? If he knows the thoughts, does he think about the thoughts? See what I'm doing? If you know my thoughts, if you can read my thoughts, are you thinking about my thoughts while you are thinking about my thoughts? Does that make any sense to anybody? God help us all. (laughs) Lord Jim, continue. I'm diverting a little bit. I'm asking you about quantum entanglement and the thoughts of God and the thoughts of men. How do the thoughts of men entangle with the thoughts of God? And do they? He says, I know your thoughts. Every single one. All of them. All the time. Is he exposing how he does things in the physical reality? But I'm diverting. Lord, Jim continues, the early measurements conducted on the speed of light showed a statistical significant variance. Possibly the result of uh, the second law of thermodynamics, which is entropy. We know or we believe that light is affected by second the second law of thermodynamics. And Tyson responds, no, no, no. The speed of light is invincible and there is no questioning uh, of it permitted. You will obey your superiors. Free will is not tolerated. And I added the, that section. He didn't actually say that. It's just aforementioned fascism. It was not in the original text. And I'm really sorry about that. Not really. Fake, sorry. So let's go with this for a few minutes and then we'll get into this lecture. Can we tell time? How many were born? How many were, I mean, I can count you, never mind. It's easy. I can see a whole bunch of you were alive and able to listen to music in 1969, 1970. Can we tell time? If not, and I assert that we, humanity, cannot tell time. We can't tell time. What is the physical measuring device of 1, 299, 742, eighths of a second? What is that? You got one? Ready? Can, that's what he says. We have set the time, but we, not, we have not measured it. There's a big difference between agreeing on it and measuring it. I need to see the measuring devices. Can we tell time? Back to that. And I, I submit that we cannot. We can guess at time. We can make assumptions based on probabilities. But humanity cannot know time with certainty. That's fantastically interesting to me. That We cannot know. We have no exactness of time ever. As he said, is a second the same at the beginning of the sentence as it is at the end of the sentence? How can you know time? You have to have the ability to divide time, to stop time, to control time. You have to be able to see time, you have to see things motionless. I asked a question a while back, can God does God see motion and, and or does he see only Motionlessness, the divisions of time. And the answer is yes. He sees what he chooses to see. Obviously, he starts everything in motion from our perspective. So clearly, he loves motion. Humanity, in my opinion, cannot know time with certainty. Man has uncertainty. That's the Heisenberg principle. So the obvi the uncertainty principle. So obvious question now erupts. Who can know what time it is? That's why we bring up 1969, 1970. Because the single came out in 1969, the album came out in 1970, right? Can you sing it with me? Does anybody really know what time it is? The answer is no. It's a wonderful question from 1969. There's trumpets in that band, I'm just saying. Does anybody really care don't any, that that applies also. I'm glad they didn't say who cares but uh... So what is required to know what time it is? Well, omniscience and infinity is required. So, so whoever is omniscient, whoever is infin- infinite, who declares that he's omniscient and infinite? Who does that? Jesus Christ does that. Who else has ever even known that it needed to be said in order to be able to say that you are the author and the container and the seer of all times? Because he is. How did he figure that out? He has to be God to say that, to even know to say that. And he did. How big a piece of evidence do you need? They will tell you constantly, by they I mean the apostates, that Christ never declared himself to be God. He said, I am the one who contains time. I can see all time. I instituted, I installed time. God placed a countdown clock, a timepiece. He put it in plain view. It's called the sun. We hardly see the sun here in Alaska. We see the obfuscation, the clouds. But he put it in plain view for real people. We just never get to see the clock. And he put time and motion together. And with time, and oh, I should put this on the board. How am I doing? I've got to go fast now. He puts time and motion together. I hope you recognize the relationship between time and motion. How motion over time. Uh, time in motion. He also put life and motion. We look at motion and we see life. Then he has death and life. And then he has time and death then then over here is eternal or timeless eternal life and eternal death that's not an accident and notice that Lord Jim begins to place infinity and in mathematics into the arena. Here's what he says. I'll read it for you again. I, can we talk about math a bit? Thank you. Surely you can agree that math and physics are not the same and that math is just a tool to help us explain the physical uh, uh, universe. And as soon as he said that, as soon as he placed infinity and mathematics into the arena, the pigeon defecated his pants and flew away, knocked all the pieces over. Mathematics is the enemy of the pigeon. Time, therefore, is likewise the enemy of the pigeon. And the pigeons know that's true. They hope you don't. They certainly don't want Christians to know these things. Because we can find it. In our own Bible. They don't even know it, that the Bible discusses it. But they, they have an inherent understanding. That Christians can defeat them. Now for something more funner. Perhaps the funnerest. That's really fast. Because uh, this is fantastic as well. I have this letter from Shannon. Guess where he's from? Texas. Yeah there we go. Shannon from Texas. I started it a while ago. Shannon has been investigating the Passover pattern or the creation week seven, the sign of Jonah, the crucifixion week. And in doing so, he's laid them all on top of each other to see how they fit, as he should. All sevens return to the first seven. You heard me say that, I hope, weeks ago. Well, here's where it finally comes back to you. By first seven, I'm referring to the Genesis seven. And naturally, those who have have the fall of Satan, see, I say to you all the time, you have the seven in Genesis. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay? We know that. Where is the first seven? Is it before? Well, better to put it on a timeline like this? Yes. Here is the creation seven. Is there anything before the creation seven? You've heard me ask that many times. In other words, it, you, those who have the fall of Satan by the abundance of your traffic, which is the fall of the angelic host, the first lie of Satan, if you will, all of the turmoil, uh, turmoil of the angelic realm. If you have placed that before Genesis one two, then you are putting it here, because the creation seven is Genesis one two. In other words, where is the beginning, and why is that the beginning? And that's why I continue to attempt to force all of you to place the first lie of Satan and its aftermath into your own timeline. I don't want to control your free will. I want you to think about where Satan fell. Did he fall before the creation seven, during the creation seven, or after the creation seven? Those are your choices. Be prepared to fight to the end for those. There's all kinds of people willing to fight you. But doing so will raise the question of the first seven. Is the first seven, the physical seven, the organic seven, is that really the first seven? Or is that seven referring back to another seven that isn't declared in Scripture in Genesis? It might be declared in Ezekiel 28 or Job. If that makes sense to you, yay. If not, don't fret. The issue is valuable. We'll get it there anyway. Shannon, during his pursuit of a neat and clean solution, because here's a here's something to know: there is no neat and clean solution. During his pursuit of this neat and clean overlay, where everything fits mathematically, where everything fits in time, there we have time and mathematics. He's trying to get this all to work, and God Jesus Christ knows what time it is, and he's the only one who knows what time it is, and he's the only one that knows all the math, all the numberings, and how and why things fit. And Christ said in Matthew twelve forty, You know this, three days and three nights, sign of Jonah. That's what he said. Does he know how long that is? He's pretty good at math. He's the one who built the clock. Three periods, then three periods, three time periods. There's three periods of day, or three periods of light, and three time periods of darkness. The light time period is to call, is called day. That's Genesis one five. And what did he call the dark time period? Night. Why does he call them day and night? That's what he calls them. Why didn't he call them Steve and Alan? My choices. Day and night. Genesis 1.5. The evening and the morning were the first day. So that we must be aware then that the first day also includes the first night. First day seems to be the first blight time period and the first dark time period. He calls that the first day. And realizing, of course, that the earth was in darkness before he did this and covered in water before he did that. That means the first dark is not the first night. Have you followed me? good. There's dark before there's the first night. Again, if that makes sense, yay. For today, for now, it will be best to note the intrinsic nature of the sign of Jonah and Genesis 1-5. Three days, three nights. I call this day and I call this night. So know that the sign of Jonah is tied to Genesis 1-5. Matthew 12 40, Genesis 1, 5. Can't separate them. Well, you can, but it's going to make it difficult to figure it out. Obviously, Christ was attaching the sign of Jonah to the orders and the meanings of Genesis 1, 2 to 1, 5. In Matthew twelve forty, Jesus begins with three days and three nights. Day before night, light before darkness, good before evil. It's what he does in Genesis. But there was dark before the first night. Still with me there? He did not say, put it this way, he did not say three nights and three days. He said three days and three nights. The sign of Jonah is the opposite. Of three nights and three days, it is three days and three nights. So what's he mean? Why did he say three days and three nights and not three nights and three days? Because most people think that he should have said three nights and three days, that he made a mistake. In the Bible... Is inconsistent because, you know, the Hebrews, and I'll get to this in a minute, the Hebrews, they count a day as the evening and then the day. And the Genesis does the same thing. So i got meanings here. What are the meanings? How much is here? We've got to assume there's something of great importance here. Ask the most obvious question of the most obvious questions. What did the angelic host, who were listening to, intently to everything God says, what did they think he meant when he said this? Both the unfallen and the fallen. Christ is revealing his timeline. He's exposing what time he knows it to be. As we all know, eventually Satan knows what time it is. Says so Revelation twelve twelve. Satan knows he has a short time. That seems to be the first time that Satan knows what time it is. And Revelation twelve twelve has a direct correlation to John thirteen twenty seven. Now after the piece of bread Satan entered him, then Jesus God said to him, "What do you, what you do do quickly?" There's the orders emphasized. Bread dipped and given. Seven Satan enters and do quickly. There's a bunch of time in there. And I've long made the case that Satan is single-minded. said this in the beginning of the pregame. Focused on killing Jews. That's what he's doing. He's focused on killing Jews and killing Christians. Many of them as he can. And kill anybody else is great. But the focus, kill first the Jews, kill second the Christians, kill everybody else the third. And I believe this to be underneath everything that Satan considers. Thus, building a connectivity between the fallen angels and the Pharisees. I threw that in there, but it's there for a reason. Big mark next to it. There is connectivity between the fallen angels and the Pharisees. Now, more on that at a later time. where was I? Jesus Christ informs us that He is not counting from darkness with His sign of Jonah, but from the time the light strikes the darkness. He is putting His darkness, I'm sorry, He's putting His sign of Jonah to Genesis 1:3, not to Genesis 1:2. Therefore, the sign of Jonah is Genesis 1:3 to Genesis 1:13. That's what He's doing. But the Jews don't do that, as I said. They count a 24-hour time period to be dark. Tonight, evening and morning. That's Hebrew time. You will see Hebrew time in Genesis. Evening to morning, one day. Evening to morning, one day. Evening to morning, one day. Jonah, three days and three nights. See the difference? Hope you do. Obvious question. Why this disparity, seeming disparity, between Hebrew time and Genesis 1 3 through 1 5? Or if you prefer, Hebrew time and the sign of Jonah are different. Why? Why does God, Genesis 1-3, begin with light, good, separate, day, then revert back to evening, dark, and the morning, light, were the first 24-hour period? And I submit it has something to do with Genesis 1-2, the cause of Genesis 1-2. What caused the darkness and the water? That is why the sign of Jonah is the way it is, and that is why reckoning Hebrew time is the way it is. Something caused the darkness in the water. What is it? Who is it? You can assault my premise next week. Finally, everybody loves finally, the Ark of Noah came to rest on Ereat on the 17th day of the seventh month. The Ark rested. When I say something rested, what am I talking about? I'm talking about Genesis. We find ourselves in Genesis 2, 1 and 2, 2. The resting of God on the seventh day. The ark is a picture of Christ. God is Christ. They rest on a day. What day do they rest on, Hebrew? They rest on Saturday. It's what they do. So why did the ark rest on Saturday? The resting of God on the seventh day, the blessing of the seventh day, the sanctification of the seventh day. That's all Genesis 2.1 through 2.2. 2. Sanctification means to make holy, to purify, to separate out. And this places the fourth of the Ten Commandments now before us as well. Remember the Sabbath, the seventh day. Keep it holy. It's the day God rested. The Ark of Noah, a type, a symbol of Christ, is the place of refuge. It's safety. It's sealed. It's covered in atonement blood. And it rests on a Sabbath, the 17th day of the seventh month. Now we've got to get into civil or religious calendars. Just through that in. it becomes important, but not now. Jesus Christ rests on the 17th day. So here we're going. His body is in the tomb. It has been there for three days and three nights. Notice the order. But the person of Christ, the and remember, God is spirit, John four twenty four. Jesus Christ himself. The body is in the tomb. Where's the person? He tells you where he is. Peter tells you where he went. That's the body. Remember, you, God never defines you as your body. The person is always the soul, the spirit. Jesus Christ himself, the Lord God Almighty, rests on Saturday, the seventh day, the weekly Sabbath. The most obvious now of the most obvious of the most obvious questions then is what is from what is he resting? Resting from what? Here's the crucifixion week. This is Shannon's Question. One, two, three, four, five, six, rest. Everybody assumes that he's resting here. Four, five, and six. What's resting there? If you want to call it resting. The body is there. The body of Christ. Is that him? Is that you? When your body is in the tomb, is that you? Is the body Christ? It's a human body. It's perfect. It's not going to corruption. Never do anything that diminishes the humanity of Christ. It's hard to understand these kinds of things. But don't do that. But I'm saying. He's crucified and he is in the tomb for three days and three nights. Get to this later. And then he rests. On the seventh day. He's resurrected on the eighth day. Here's the resurrection. That's first fruits. What's he doing when he's resting? What's going on here? From what is he resting? What did he do on days one, two, three, four, five, and six? Because he has to rest on the seventh day. He wants to rest on the seventh day. And it has some relationship to the creation week, huh? That's where we will stop. Do I have any time left? Do I have any time left at all? Okay. Then next week, we will spend more time. The only person that will understand that I am referring to this letter from Shannon from Texas is Shannon from Texas. Next week, I will make it obvious why all that comes together.